Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com using the promo code MICROCAP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker-dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you're listening to episode 211. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes and Spotify. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Um, first, we want to, before we get into the rest of the intro today, um, <laughs> thank you so much for all the kind words and congratulations. We're, my wife and I are so excited to welcome our second child into the world. He was born on January 18, 2022. His name is Jude Zachary Kraft, and uh, we're, we're just beyond stoked. Uh, he's just He's amazing. And so, uh, uh, again, that's also why I have to apologize for this episode coming out. Maybe it's probably about a day late. So, uh, uh, again, I appreciate you all listening and uh, the kind words and, and everything like that. So, so thank you. A uh, special thank you to our sponsors for today's episode, Stream by Mosaic, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free two-week trial on their website at www.streamrg.com. That's www.streamrg.com using the promo code MICROCAP. And Quarter, whose mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Visit your app store of choice to try it out. And that's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. We are also excited to host our first in-person event in nearly three years. The Planet Microcap Showcase is back in Las Vegas on May 3rd through the 5th, 2022 at Bally's Hotel and Casino. It's time to see each other. It's time to network in person. Let's make it all happen in the entertainment and business capital of the world. For more information, please go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Joe Mager. He's the co-founder of Lake House Capital. I remember seeing Joe's presentation, I think a year or two ago at the Microcap Club Leadership Summit, and I've been a follower ever since. In this conversation, Joe and I discussed his experience launching The Motley Fool in Australia, Lake House Capital's investment approach, research process, and so much more. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 211 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Joe Mager. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at www.streamrg.com. 
That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. Stream was built by Mosaic, and unlike any other transcript libraries, Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.com. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and you can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And joining me today is a gentleman who I actually saw do a keynote presentation at the Microcap Leadership Summit. I think it was a couple of years ago now. And uh, I'm just really stuck that he, the, you know, he's got a little time on his hands right now that uh, he can talk to talk to Bobby Boy. So I love it. Uh, we, we got Joe Mager here, uh, co-founder of Lake House Capital, soon to be uh, a hop, skip, and a jump, my neighbor here. So, uh, Joe, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Forward to chat. Uh, absolutely. So, I got to start there. I mean, you you announced on uh, Twitter, and uh, I think it was in October, that uh, you're currently ba- based in Sydney right now, and you're now making the move back to the U.S. to Austin. Uh, I guess it's been nine years, right? Since, since you've yeah, been back. Nine years down under. You haven't you you haven't developed your uh, your Australian accent. I'm sure I'm sure it comes out when you're at the bar, of course, like that, mo- like most of us. Well, I picked up a lot of Australian words, um, but yeah, the accent. I still have a hard American accent. My wife picked up an Australian accent, but uh, but I'm pretty committed to my my sure. neutral American accent. Is your nickname, you know how they always do like, it, like I'm a follower. I, I love, uh, I love surfing. So I follow pro surfing, but they call it like Joel Parkinson's Parko and, uh, and uh, Dingo. I mean, are you, are you Mago or what's the, what's. what's uh, you know, I get, because Joe is short for Joseph. I get Joey sometimes. Okay. Uh, but I, I don't really have like a super cool, like one of my favorites is guys named Dave. Their nickname is Davo. I'm like that's a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be pretty funny. I, I mean, I don't know how tall you're because we're doing this virtually, but that'd be pretty funny. It's like you're six five and they're calling you a Joey. You know, yeah. I, I, I very much would appreciate that. But tell tell us what what brings you back uh, back stateside. Sure. Well, uh, originally from Atlanta, born and raised. In, in a nutshell, born and raised uh, from Georgia. Uh, moved to the DC area for a few years, which I loved, and then had an opportunity to move down under. Um, to help grow the Motley Fool's Australian research business. So uh, I'd been with the Fool at that point for six, eight years. Loved it. Um, working at the Fool is like working in an investing fantasy camp. Uh, it's really great. And the idea or the opportunity to go abroad and get international experience was really attractive to me personally, professionally. So I, growing up, I never had plans to, to leave my home state, hometown. Uh, I loved it. But um, as I got older, I came to widen the lens and, you know, my wife and I just got married and we thought, man, getting to live in Australia for a couple of years, with no career risk, essentially, and helping to grow like a startup part of the business. Let's just go for it. You know, 
two years turns into nine. Um, and I guess we got here and just love the place. Uh, if anyone's visited Australia, you know, you get great weather, food, people, um, culture. There's, there's so much to love about being here and, and Sydney in particular, you know, it's a major financial center ringed with gorgeous beaches, uh, which is attractive, you know, um, after about three, four years, we launched Lake House Capital, um, which I co-founded with Donnie Buchanan, and that's gone really well. So that's been going for about five years. Um, but as you may have heard, there was a virus that started spreading at some point, um, and Australia closed its borders hard. So basically, the border's been closed here for, it's now partially open, but almost two years. And a um, bit of a long story Short, as much as I love Lake House, it's been an amazing experience. Uh, we've gone from, you know, two to 13 employees. The business has gone really well, really pleased with what we've built. Um, my wife and I just want to get closer to family at the end of the day. And at the moment right now, you know, it, between shut borders and just distance, we were like, you know, we just, for our sake, for our family's sake, for our kids' sake, we just want to be closer. So it made the tough decision to move on. I was going to ask, like, cause that it's been, I mean, obviously like I, I have a few colleagues that are, that are based down there and it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I think on Twitter, I don't know if it was yesterday or the day before it was like hashtag mass psychosis or something like what, what the yeah. heck's going on there? I mean, have you guys, have you guys even been um, able to leave the country or I know you can travel oh, between States a little bit, right? Well, you, you can, you can leave the country now, okay. but for, for better and worse, the country shut the border. It's a it's one giant island essentially, um, plus Tasmania. To be fair, so any people from Tassie listening are offended. Um, and shut the gates, and it kept COVID up. And you know, for the longest time, we essentially had zero COVID or close to it, which was great from a public health standpoint. But obviously, there are some costs to having a closed border, and you know, they kept it closed for a really long time. Uh, eventually, you know, we, we achieved something like 95% double vaxxed in New South Wales is where we're based. Um, and, and yet Delta's, uh, not Delta, what are we on? Omicron's ripping through. Anyway, so <clears throat> yeah, uh, I will, that, that's its own rabbit hole. But yeah, borders have been closed and um, we've, we've loved living here. It's been great. Yeah. Love it, Lake House team and all that, but we're just looking forward to get closer to home. You're about you're about to get a major COVID culture shock going to Austin for sure. I'm oh, sure right. <laughs> that'll be that's gonna be a big day. My wife and I went to Austin to visit. Um, we were, we were looking at it actually briefly, and and we we visited probably like the worst time of the year. It uh it was uh, remember that ice storm that hit? I think it was early earlier last year. Yeah. I love Austin. It's an amazing city. But uh, yeah, like, it, it, well, one, we hit it at the worst time, but like we're beach people. So like we couldn't, we couldn't get it, wrap our heads around, like not being near a beach. Like it just, we, we could, but enough about me. Um, so let's dig into a little bit. Uh, this is, uh, you know, listen, we could talk about, you know, moving across state lines and different countries all day. And I, I love that stuff. I find that fascinating as well, but you're on an investing podcast. So we probably should talk about that a little bit. Um, so I'd love to, to learn a little bit more about, you know, your, your investing philosophy. I'm, I'm guessing you had a lot of influence from working at the fool as well. So I'd love, love to hear more there. Sure. Well, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, at, at the core, I'm a long-term investor. Uh, and I guess I'd say, I'll talk about a couple of things that I think, um, 
people on Fintwit can take for granted sometimes because Fintwit can be an echo chamber, which I don't know that people realize necessarily. Um, and I guess, and I can speak a little bit to this, but things that I realized once we started Lakehouse and really got inside the machinery of, you know, investment management and seeing, you know, you have your preconceived notions of what being a fund manager is and what the business looks like, um, all aspects of it from, you know, distribution to, to trading, to the research, to, you know, client engagement, dealing brokers. And then you get inside it and, and you see um, how some things are different. And I guess what I'd say is, when I came into the business of investment management, I thought that people in the business were really short-term oriented, but it turns out they're much more short-term oriented than I thought they were. <laughs> and um, that's just something that permeates the business. And, um, you know, if you look at studies, they'll show the, the median fund manager has a time horizon of only about six months. Uh, and I can tell you, you know, when you get in meetings with other managers, so we go to broker lunches, for example, and you have a CEO, CFO from a company, they're presenting, be 10, 15 p.m. sitting around a table. You know, sometimes it feels like we're the only person not trying to triangulate, you know, what the next half's EBITDA is going to look like, basically. And um, just operating on a different time horizon as an investor is such a powerful thing. And I'm not going to say that it's impossible to make money over the short term, however, you know, the evidence shows on average, the vast majority of people try to do so, you know, Jim Simons can do it, but no offense, but if you're watching this, you're probably not Jim Simons and you're probably not going to have success day trading. Um, so try to put time on our side and, and evidence, you know, you look at virtually any study out there across markets, time horizons, they all show that investors who trade less on average have better performance than those who don't. I guess on, you know, you asked philosophy. I think another key thing for me that, that I hold dear is that I'm a high conviction investor. Um, again, when you look at research and all the evidence, it shows on average investors who invest with more conviction have better performance than those who don't, which makes perfect sense, right? Because when you're being pragmatic about it, you can only cover so many ideas at once and know them well. Um, and even if you could cover them all, you know, frankly, you don't have that many great ideas. I mean, I, I personally don't. And I don't mean that in a cynical, self-effacing way. It's just that if you're looking for, essentially what I'm looking for are situations where you have a big asymmetric skew. You've got multiple ways to win, few ways to lose. And they're hard to find. And if you're looking to find ideas like that that you can own for many years and they can reinvest in attractive rates for many years, well, you know, there just, there aren't, you know, 50, 100 of those at any given point in time that I want to put capital. Um, so backing our best ideas uh, has always been very intuitive to me, but it's evidence-based and, you know, the evidence on that is, uh, it's really striking and there's a range of different ways you can look at it. You can look at it fairly simply about, you know, PMs with fewer holdings outperforming, but then you can look at some studies that show things like strategies where they move from single manager to dual manager performance degrades on average in those situations. And what happens in those situations? They expand the number of holdings. And that's true from dual manager to multi, but the funny thing is it works in reverse too. So when you go from multi-manager to dual or dual to single, the number of holdings changes and lo and behold, performance changes too. So, you know, for us, I think just backing your best ideas. Um, and I will say, you know, for the retail investors watching, 
there's a degree of pragmatism here because I'm kind of talking about this in professional context where, you know, high conviction is, you know, 10 to 20. Um, you know, I think a lot of retail investors may not, they would look at that and be like, oh, it's pretty diversified. And, you know, when you look at the data, actually, that that is pretty diversified. Uh, but I guess in the context of professional environment, if you look at our global fund, we own around 20 holdings historically, which is for context in the top decile of concentration in our peer group. But if you look at the median for the peer group, they own over 60. And that's the median, you know, and they own something like 66 companies. So, you know, again, it's just a reminder of um, Fintwit can be a bit of an echo chamber. And I don't mean that negatively. It's just when you follow a bunch of people who you're like-minded with, that's good and self-reinforcing. You kind of lose sight of, you know, your average professional is not running a 20-stock portfolio. They're running a 60 to 70 stock portfolio where they're managing career risk. Um, they trade often. They don't want to own stocks that are hard to defend when they talk to clients. And, and all that is to your advantage if you're a retail investor who's patient and does the work or um, investing in you know smaller companies with a different time horizon. I'd like to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world, straight from your pocket for no cost. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. The first step on this journey is to let you, the user, interact with the company's content while you're listening. Visit your app store of choice and try it out today by searching for Quarter. And that's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Now back to the show. So uh, you we mentioned how, uh, you know, the, the full strategy, it's almost like a never sell type strategy, long-term holding on to these businesses. You know, you ha- have that mentality when you're going in and looking at them. You know, I'm always curious then for folks like you and, and others that have that long-term mindset, you know, what causes you to sell them? Do you, do, sure. you, do you ever? You know, I will say I sell more than David and Tom. Um, I mean, David essentially never sells. So it'd be hard to sell uh, to the same degree uh, that he does. Um, you know, for us, I'd say that the biggest reasons are one, if a thesis breaks. Um, and I think the biggest mistakes, well, the, the two biggest mistakes that I've made in my career process-wise, that it, not just like individual situations, but process failures that I've learned to improve upon over time. One was averaging down in situations where fundamentals weren't working. Um, fortunately, I've stopped stubbing my toe repeatedly in situations like that, uh, but I've learned that the hard way. Uh, the other would be hanging on in situations where your thesis is just broken and continuing to, to justify it. And you wake up one day and the thesis that you're articulating to yourself and, and to clients is so vastly different from what you signed up for. Um, now, a tricky thing with that is, you know, sometimes... Sometimes when it's most obvious that a thesis is broken is when the stock has already been hammered, right? And when you're cutting bait at that point, you know, you kind of have to find this balance of, well, am I selling at the worst possible moment where I'm extremely consensus on being negative? Uh, but I guess I'd say to that, we try to be a little more pragmatic and, and pay attention to signals around just fundamentally, is the investment case we had here going the way we expected? 
And if it's not, then we need to be sharp about that and intellectually honest. And, you know, we need to, you know, a lot of time you're relying on what management says to give context and, and color around that. And do they have credibility with you? Do they have credibility with the market? Those are, that's where a lot of the qualitative stuff really comes in. Um, but I'd say that that would be the biggest thing is just, is the thesis unmoored. The other would be on valuation. So we're growth investors. I didn't really talk about that, but we are growth investors. Um, but at the same time, you know, I'm not a glutton for punishment. I'm not a masochist. Like I don't want to intentionally overpay for something. Um, so, you know, we do our evaluation work. We, we think about reasonable ranges of outcomes and expected returns. And, you know, if we own something and it's gone really well, even if it's fundamentally shot the lights out, there are thresholds in terms of expected returns going forward and, and portfolio construction needs that I would say, well, look, we're, we're going to need to resize this because this doesn't, doesn't make sense. And so, you know, last year, probably around a year ago, obviously it's been a tough environment for growth investors, but we, you know, we exited four companies in the span of a few months, which for us is like, whoa, super active. Uh, but there was a window there where valuations for particularly SaaS names just got super high. And we don't like selling great companies, um, but there were some prices where we felt like, you know, we just can't justify continuing to hold this. Um, and when you're working with a large mandate, you know, you can reallocate elsewhere. And so that's what we did. But, you know, those are typically the two biggest reasons. Got it. And, and uh, continuing down this, this line as well, you know, um, when you're building your thesis, uh, I mean, uh, what, what kind of checks do you put in place where like, obviously, okay, best of all possible outcomes here, you know, expected returns, all that stuff, you know, how much emphasis do you put on, okay, these are the one, two, three, four, five things that could potentially go wrong in this business. You know, yeah. how often, how often do you do that? Or do you do, I'm uh, sure every time? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'd say I came into I came into growth investing from a value background. So my first investing book was a Buffett book. Uh, it was, it was um, Buffettology, which it, I now realize in hindsight it was not a particularly well-written book, but it, it got me in the mindset of investing in high-quality companies, a long-term perspective. Um, and paying a, paying a good price. Now, I'd already been into investing at that point and had an orientation towards quality. But nonetheless, um, so I kind of went down this like value path. Um, but where I come into it from a growth perspective, I'd say is, and I guess how that evolved over time, I came to realize a few things like, um, I don't look down, like, oh, it's funny, a lot of growth investors look down on value, and a lot of value investors look down on growth. You know, as Buffett's fond of saying, it joined at the hip. And ultimately, I think it's all about value investors and growth investors are looking for the best asymmetric situations at the position level and trying to put together portfolios that, that provide the best risk reward around that. And I think that's true across, you know, whichever philosophy you're kind of embracing. Um, you know, with, with growth, what I'd say kind of appealed to me was um, there's a wider range of outcomes when you're investing in growth for better and worse. But if your view is you can add value through analysis and active stock picking, then why wouldn't you skew towards the factor where there is a wider range of outcomes where qualitative analysis can add more value? Um, so that, you know, that was a big driver for me. Um, and I guess I'd say too, that with growth versus value, 
if you're trying to factor them, I think it's a lot harder to, to factor businesses that are growing quickly and that aren't, that aren't necessarily blueprints for what their business models are or what they've done. Um, and not necessarily saying disruptors, but obviously disruptors count. But um, even businesses that are just relatively early in a nascent industry, it's hard to, to factor those kinds of situations. Whereas if you look at traditional value, um, to be blunt, you can get value beta really, really cheaply today. You know, and if your game is large cap value, well, you know, there are any number of ETFs you could go out and buy that, right? Um, obviously, this is progress talking about micro caps, so you can't really factor that. And uh, you know, our small cap fund, we're, we're really proud of that. And I'd say, you know, that's a space where um, it's wildly inefficient. Um, you know, I, I'm really, really meandering from what your original question was there. No, let's. I like it. Go, good, keep going. Okay. Every direction. It's all. It's all okay. Fun. Cool. So to, to, now I'm just like I'm just steering all over the road. Just here. go, um, go. We're free for it. Podcast. So to, to talk about Aussie Smalls in particular, um, what's unique about it is it's the there may be another one out there, but uh, it's the only pocket of the market I know of where Australian small cap fund managers, on average, outperform the benchmark net of fees, and that's for anyone who you know follows markets closely. That's really rare and unusual. And I think a good question is why? Like, why is it there's this little pocket of 80 to 100 funds that collectively are able to outperform it? And I think it's a combination of things. I mean, one, generally speaking, when you're looking at smalls, you know, you can find more differentiated and micro caps in particular. You can find differentiated ideas and ones that aren't as um, well covered. And, and that's an extreme in Australia. So there are over 2,000 listed companies. The top 50 represent the bulk of the market cap of the index. On average, they've got something like 14 analysts on. When you get from the ASX 100 to 300, they have an average of eight following them. And then you've got another <clears throat> essentially 1,600 companies that get virtually no institutional attention. And so if you're a small cap manager or a retail investor who is willing to just do a little bit of work you know, you can find a lot of interesting ideas before, um, I, I wouldn't even say big money, but, you know, smaller professional money can find it. And I'd say another thing with that is because we're so many, I'm assuming most people watching this are Americans, um, so many American investors, not just Americans, most people only invest in their home markets. And Australia is not tiny, but it's only 2% of the world's market cap. So, there are some global small cap managers, but not a lot. And really, we don't we don't get a lot of attention here from people outside of Australia. And I think it's it's partly home bias. It's partly we're on the other side of the planet, and it's really hard to set up a meeting with companies in Australia because time zones are so wacky. So, you know, but for people who are willing to to do the work and sniff around, there are great opportunities here, just like every other. You know, just like every other market, but I would say Australia is a developed market that's you know English speaking, very similar standards to the U.S. and I think would be pretty ripe for investors looking to do work from the U.S. for international small cap and micro. A hundred percent, and I would and I would argue that I mean a lot of folks listening here, um, especially focused in micro caps, um, 
they, from those who I've talked to, a good amount of them, they, they'll go wherever, you know, if they, whether they're, they see a, a good opportunity, you know, they make it work or they figure out how to participate in whatever way they can. Right. Um, and Australia is, a, a, I, I, I love this country. I can't wait to visit one day, especially on the micro cap side. It's such an active active market down there. I mean, I've had Tony Hansen on here uh, and Matt Joss uh, from Maven. And, you know, we they they talked about that Australian mindset where it, it is somewhat of a gambling nation. I mean, they, they gamble on everything, you know. That's not to say that, you know, investing is, a you know, another casino or anything, maybe in some respects. But, you know, uh, it's a little bit there, you know. And Australians uh, gamble more per capita than any other country. Yeah. So, you know, it, it only makes sense that, you know, uh, there's such an active, active, small micro nano cap community down there. I mean, just maybe clarify for our audience. I mean, does some of your funds have exposure to Australian names as well? Or do you specifically only look in, oh, in U.S. Canada? So I ran, um, I no longer do, but there are two lake house funds. One's focused on global mid-large. Okay. The other is Australian, New Zealand, small and micro. So... To two different flavors of ice cream, but ultimately the same strategy underpinning them, just focus on different parts of global do, markets. Do you look at all sectors or uh, or do you tend to focus on on well, we tend to focus based on business models. Okay. So we end up with heavy sector concentrations, but essentially um, when we built out the team, I kind of approached it through the lens of like if our kind of first principles, if our goal is long-term outperformance and we're gonna do it through a high conviction, low turnover portfolio approach. Well, how do we do that? Well, we're probably going to be looking for businesses that can reinvest in tracked rates for a long time in growing markets with great leadership teams. And they probably have business models that underpin the ability to do that. So instead of looking by sector or geography, why don't we have people focused on business models instead? So instead of having someone who covers Europe and tech, for example, um, we have someone who covers networks. We have another who does IP and we have someone who does loyalty. And so we have three different internal um, research, I would say teams because they're not that big, but leads focused on deep expertise around those business models. And you know, we'll go, we'll go wherever they are in terms of sectors. We don't really pay attention to sector naming. Um, we have a company um, just for compliance reasons, I'll skip, skip the name, but after we invested in it, someone on the team said, oh, hey, um, this is an industrials. So we finally own something in industrials. I'm like, oh, cool. Um, but, you know, we've done, we done all this work, but all purely qualitatively based, but it probably tells you a lot about how little we pay attention to. Well, and the reason I ask that question is because Australia, in, in my conversations with folks, you know, it's, it's a very similar market in many respects with Canada, right? Where, especially in the small micro cap space where it's, you know, majority junior mining, mining, and then you have just this so overlooked small um, uh, corridor of uh, technology, healthcare, industrials that just gets completely overlooked because of it's both both areas are yes. so heavily done. Yeah, that's a great point. And when you look professionally here, analysts tend to get trained on, because the, the indices are dominated by the big banks, yep. um, handful of retailers and mining. And so professionally, when analysts come in the field, that's what they focus on. There just aren't a lot of people in Australia who are very familiar with, with IT, with healthcare, um, you know, with payments, uh, e-commerce. And they, 
I know people who are, to be clear. So it's not like we're the only people here who know what an LTV CAC is. Um, but pound for pound, there are just fewer people here focused on that, even though there are plenty of um, great businesses listed. So, how, so then, okay. We more or less, I think, could figure out what sectors then you do focus in on. So, I mean, what, what, how, how do you protect against downside risk then when you're looking at some of these, these, you know, looking at tech, sure. cyclical? So, at, at the position level, what I'd say is that, um, and what I said, you know, before coming from a value perspective, I guess what, the reason I mentioned that is your value investors tend to think a little more first around capital preservation and then upside. Um, but even though I'd say I'm a growth investor today, and if you take what we own and shove in the Morningstar style box, it's like your growth. Um, we still have a legacy of, look, we want upside. We're about upside capture, but we can afford to be a little bit choosy and still try to contain our downside as well. Um, and I think most, you know, a lot of growth investors have this habit sometimes of viewing investments as almost like lottery tickets. And I'm like, yeah, look, again, we want the upside, but let's try to control for our downside. So for us, uh, the first layer of that is we're heavy checklisters. So we've got a 27-point checklist we work through with every position. Um, there's a range of upside factors, downside, I should say traits, not factors, uh, but that we're looking for in qualities and companies. And some of those are positive, some of them are negative, and those items are based on our experience and empirical evidence uh, wherever possible. Everything we look at goes through one of those checklists and it just really helps us to assess pretty quickly. All right, do we think generally speaking, this might have the kind of skew we're looking for? If yes, then that proceeds to doing a full piece of work. And that'll be led by one of our analysts who's a, a lead on the core business model that business is in. And to that point, we don't look at anything unless it has a business driven by really strong IP, very low customers or network effects. So Already, you've kind of taken this like big universe and, you know, taken it down to here. Let me ask you about this. I mean, because in my experience also in talking with, you know, Australian listed or Australian based, New Zealand based, you know, the ones, the ones that tend to be a little more interesting are ones that aren't just focused specifically on selling to the Australian market or to the New Zealand market, staying, staying within their borders, which, hey, that's not to say you can't build a huge business. And I mean, there's millions of people that live in Australia, there's millions, you know, that, that's not to say anything, but like, you know, when you're thinking, when you have a company that's yeah. thinking a little bit more globally, it makes it a bit more palatable. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And if you look at the biggest winners, it is hard to build a software business in Australia that could be worth a billion dollars if you're only focused on Australia. There are exceptions, um, like Iris. We don't own it at the fund, but they they are the dominant order management system uh, for brokers and buy side here in Australia. They have over ninety percent market share. It's just this intense network effect. Uh, where if you, domestic, if you do domestic trading, your domestic fund manager, you use Iris. It, it's almost impossible to not use. Um, and they charge like how you would think they would charge. But outside of that, yeah, that's, that's an extremely niche thing. For the most part, the, the path that you'll see is someone develops a really cool product or piece of IP, piece of software here, and they're able to export it successfully. And they can do that because 
the product itself adds a lot of value for customers and has inherent dynamics that are somewhat viral to them. And when that happens, you know, it can work out in a big way. Um, you know, I think if you look at Atlassian, that's the flagship, you know, Titan of Australian tech, which sadly is not listed on the ASX. Um, but yeah, they, even in the smaller end of town, we've had some, some big successes with Australian based companies. Um, you know, CEO can be here, CFO is based here, but they'll have 80% of their revenue from overseas and heavily from the US, which probably won't surprise anyone. So on that note, I mean, like how early have you gotten in on some of the, as you said, you're on the growth side, but have you ever looked at or ha- or owned a few or owned a few of these tech names where they they were they didn't hit that that inflection point just yet, but you could tell based on their IP and their tech have, having looked through, you're like, okay, there is potential mass adoption globally, but they're just not there yet. But we want to maybe look at it right now. Yeah. Uh, yes, fortunately, and also unfortunately, where I've 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 missed those two. Uh, but I'd say where you, um, yeah, I guess like the educational side of this, where you tend to find those are situations where you've got great domestic product market fit, where you're working with partners who want to take your product overseas. So if we were to use Afterpay um, as an example, we don't own, I don't own it personally, we don't own funds. I should say we don't own Atlassian either. Uh, I don't own it personally. Um, but we, we, used, we used to own both of them, the, the funds. Um, Afterpay is one where started in Australia. Where did they move next? They didn't kick the door down and go straight to the U.S. They moved to New Zealand, which is like Australia's little brother. No offense to the Kiwis, um, but it's you know it's about four million people. It's a great test market for iterating outside of your home country. The thing is that was really promising. They had retail partners who wanted to bring Afterpay to other countries. And they're like, look, we're really happy with what this is doing here. We'd love to take this to the US, UK, um, New Zealand. And so they very carefully started with New Zealand. And then when they went to the US, they even got someone to help fund that. They had a local VC who um, invested a lot of capital specifically into the US division. So it was kind of a heads, we win and keep 80%, tails, we lose your money situation, um, which, which we found attractive. And because they built up great relationships with retailers here who happened to be US, US-based but had Australian operations, they had a running start into the US. Uh, they'd already proven product market fit and they could distribute here. There weren't any quirky language barriers or you know, business model reasons why we couldn't see it working in the US. And so that, that would be the ultimate example of one where we, we probably caught the, uh, the S-curve at, at the best moment. And I could say there are ones where, you know, but for every one of those, most businesses that do try to go overseas fail, right? Yeah. And that's not, Australians, I find, can be a little hard on themselves. We're like, oh, most of the time it doesn't work. I'm like, well, that's true, but that's the base rate for every country, you know, because it is hard to take your business and go overseas. Um, but, you know, when it works, especially when you're scaling into a market that's 13 times the size of the one you're in, you know, that's a pretty attractive range of outcomes when it works. That's pretty awesome. Where, what, was there ever a time that you thought was such a sure thing and were so wrong? You're like, oh man, like that set all the, that hit all the boxes. Like, oh, dang it. Oh, sure. I mean, 
I don't know. I don't know if I'd say sure thing, but we've definitely had like one of our bigger positions at the small cap fund. Um, it's a company called BWX, which we don't own anymore. Um, they have a brand called Sukin. It's S-U-K-I-N. Very popular here in Australia. It's not, it's like a natural cosmetics brand and um, skincare brand. Gained a lot of share really quickly. Uh, seemed to have potential moving overseas. They had some good distribution partners that had us excited for a variety of reasons that thesis didn't work out like we wanted. Uh, but I would say, you know, the US and UK expansions just didn't go quite like we thought. In the UK, they had good distributing. Well, they had shelf space, but you, you didn't get the, the sales flow through that we were hoping for. In the US, they made a couple of acquisitions to help bolster that, which did not work out well. So it, you know, it happens, but I will say for the ones where it, it really works when you're moving into such larger markets, it, it really, really works. I got to ask, man, like after you moved to Austin, I mean, you haven't made clear exactly what you're going to do yet, but we would all assume you're still going to be an investor in some shape or form, but like, are you still going to look at Australia or are you now going to maybe shift more of your focus back in North America, you know, US, Canada? Um, nothing really to, to speak, nothing, nothing to announce today. <laughs> no, I didn't mean to lie. I don't, yeah. But I'm, yeah, look, I mean, I'm not retiring, uh, but I will say that, you know, the experience I've had here uh, I've loved and, you know, the world's a big place. There are a lot of great small companies out there. And, you know, the experience I've had here was, I, it's not invaluable, but it was valuable. And, you know, I'll definitely keep looking. I, I think it's fair to say when we move back to the States, I will not be a U.S. only investor. There you go. Okay. Hey, uh, another thing when it comes to Australia, and I asked this to, I've asked this to Tony, I asked this to Matt, I asked this to a few people when we talk about Australian investing, especially in microcaps. How do you deal with these share structures? I mean, billions of shares outstanding, you know, to any, you know, anybody who's listening that loves, you know, tight share structure, high insider ownership, you know, that's one thing that's still so hard to yeah. wrap your head around. You know, and I guess uh, what Bobby, um, this is what directly he said, but something that's quirky about Australia is the share prices of companies are what you would consider to be penny stocks in the States. So, you know, we've had, I would top of head, most of the positions we had at the small cap fund when we initiated at single digit share prices and oftentimes below a dollar. Um, our biggest win was a business where it was around two bucks a share when we invested. So, you know, just culturally, the way, the way bankers and companies try to frame the pricing of their stocks is different. Than it is in the states, where that is viewed as a negative. Here, it's viewed a little more as, um, "Hey, you're early. You get more shares <laughs> for the same amount of money," um, and that's kind of the way it's framed. Um, obviously, it doesn't matter, you know, how how many ways you how many slices the pizza is in, or the same size pizza. Um, yeah, I guess it's something to get used to. But to your point, and I think to get back to something else from a, a micro perspective. There are a lot of companies here that are listed where you do have really tight registers that, you know, if you're managing a few hundred million, that's a challenge. If you are an individual investor or you're running a small fund, you know, frankly, it's not a deal breaker. Like one of our biggest wins here was a business where the founders owned two thirds of the company 
And even though, like, if you looked at the business, you'd be like, it's a dream. So um, we still own it. So just for, I won't get into what it is, but uh, strong, back when we initiated, strong net cash position, founder-led, um, great margins growing quickly because the company had hugely captive and loyal customers, uh, big market opportunity. They had small market share, but were gaining rapidly against um, really checked out competitors globally. Um, they had just won some major, major customers who were proof points for winning more business. And I think at the time it might've had one, one analyst professionally who was putting out um, estimates and, and a rating on the stock might've been two, but virtually had no coverage. And the reason was just liquidity, you know, and I think something that uh, I think a lot of, of your viewers slash listeners will be familiar with, but a lot of people who don't necessarily play in the space may not realize is there's this vicious cycle for virtuous, depending on where you are uh, in it, where brokers don't want brokers and analysts at the same house. They don't want to cover companies where there's no liquidity because their clients being fund managers don't want to invest in companies where there's no liquidity. So they just don't get attention. And in turn, and it, there's a feedback loop here where the fund managers don't see these companies because the brokers aren't putting them on the radar because they're not being covered. So it just kind of feeds on itself over and over. Um, but, you know, when you look around, you can find companies like that. And I would say with that company too, it's screened beautifully. Like if you were just running really basic screens, you would have seen it. There's this hiding in plain sight, but because of the liquidity, the, the pros just really uh, ignored it. Not not to go on a, a different tangent or anything, because I, I I have another follow up to that. But like, and this is going back to your to your background, and and the more I think about you know what brought you to Australia to begin with, and and in reflecting and speaking with you on some of the other conversations I had with with other investors in in Australia, and this kind of this the the Australian investing microcap culture. I mean, what was it like opening the fool down there? You know, that has this never sell long term approach. Um, it, it was really well received, to be honest. I yeah. think that there, um, I think people, most people are not long-term investors, but right. the ones who are, when you speak their language, it, it resonates with them. Um, yeah. And I think, I think generally people just find it refreshing because it's intuitive, you know, like, well, so we're going to invest in really high quality companies and hold on for a long time and not trade a lot. Like, that's, that's pretty intuitive. You don't need to, most people on the street, if you explain that to them, they're like, yeah, they, they do a lot of nodding. They get it. Uh, it's not overly complicated. So um, research process, you know, Joe, can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, once you find a company, what are some of your channel checks so that you're like, okay, we're going to start to size in this position. Sure. Um, so you know, as, as I mentioned before, first step is anything that's brought to the table has a business model that we're already behind. Um, so that's IP networks loyalty. We get literally to the table, although this is back when we actually met around the table now, so resume, but something like two thirds of the ideas that analysts bring to the table to talk about doing a checklist on, uh, we decide uh, we're going to proceed with, but a third we leave on the cutting room floor. So of those that get to that, the analyst will go off and do a 27-point checklist, positive and negative traits. Um, 
That's then peer reviewed by everybody on the team. And we provide feedback notes, we get together and discuss it. From there, we make a decision as a group, um, typically led by the PM, but you know, if the analyst is excited on progressing to a full piece of work, and for context, probably half the companies that we do a checklist on progress. That that ratio has fallen over time uh, as we've gotten, um, basically as we've worked through more companies, it's just getting harder and harder to get something in when your turnover is so low. Um, from there, then you do the full piece of work. And this is probably the meteor part that I think a lot of you know analysts find sexier. But I will say before I get to that, I do think checklisting there's a lot of virtue in it because it provides consistency, rigor. Um, and sometimes the things in it can seem boring and mundane, but they can be easy to check and helpful. So I'll give you an example. We had a company once that I was looking at. Um, my, my sniff test of it was it was really interesting, um, but I was like, well, we're not gonna short circuit the process here. I'm gonna go through and you know do the, the full piece of work here. And then going through the checklist, I got to a reputable auditor which normally is, is a pretty quick yes or no. And I'm guessing, you know, some plenty of people would say that a big four auditor doesn't necessarily mean that um, everything is great with the books, but particularly with smalls and micros, you know, you do need to pay more attention to who your auditors are. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna check the auditor and I go and check. And I'm like, well, I haven't heard of these guys actually. And when I went and looked, they only did the books for eight companies, one of which I knew from a friend, um, had shady books, like very shady. And that allowed us to avoid what on a stiff test was interesting, turned out to, to do really badly and allowed us to avoid that. And again, it was one of those things where we've done hundreds of checklists. That's probably one of a handful of times where we had serious concerns about an auditor, but it, it allowed us to avoid you know a big mistake, assuming we would have invested. It takes two minutes to check that, right? But a lot of people don't. So it's just having just a, a systematic framework for, okay, check this, that, this, using that to help shape and, and make sure you're consistent. So then getting to the more fun qualitative part. Uh, I think ultimately, again, you know, what we're trying to find here is a deep understanding of the business model, the economic model, how money flows in and out of the business returns on capital, not at the group level, but at the unit level, and really trying to unpack unit economics, understand product market fit. And at the end of the day, well, you know, what we're trying to understand, what are the ways things can work out? So I think a lot of investors focus, and we do focus on what can go wrong, and trying to eliminate potential points of failure in a thesis, like, you know, is there an issue with an auditor, for example? But at the end of the day, equity investing is about upside. And so we're trying to find ways that we think credibly that we think something can work out. Then there's the layer of what is our very perception around that? So what do we see differently about this business and its economics and its leadership and its market that, that the market doesn't already see? Um, you know, this probably isn't a revelation to anyone, but you know, business might be growing quickly. Everyone agrees that doesn't necessarily mean you have very perception, right? Um, but I found if you don't have clear varying perceptions on a business, either you don't know it well, or the market's already priced it really well, right? So, you know, identifying those and, and really articulating them clearly is, is a really, you could say that's the heart of, of the qualitative side. 
And that's driven by a deep dive into, again, like unit economics management. So what is their background? What are their incentives? What's integrity? And a lot of that is squishy and hard to define. Um, but sometimes, you know, sometimes you get that from company meetings on incentives. A lot of that's just plainly available. We see how people are motivated. You know, lo and behold, if a company, if a CEO is incentivized to grow revenue, um, and or let's say EBITDA, but there's no per share item anywhere involved and no returns on capital involved, they're going to make an acquisition. They're going to. And it never fails. Uh, and as we know, most acquisitions destroy value. So just, I mean, there are exceptions, uh, but you can get some simple insights into just looking into this, you know, specifics on how people are compensated. Um, I'm really trying to unpack all that, try and understand, I mean, obviously we look at financials, but I'd say we're, we're less concerned about today's P&L and more about what are the unit economics of this business? What is the opportunity we see ahead? How do we think they can scale what they have today? Um, yeah, and I think that's, it's treated us well, but that's how we tend to approach, you know, viewing our companies. And then in terms of thinking about risk, you know, I'd say we've already started that in the process with the checklisting, we go deeper into that. And then we try to explore in more, more detail around particularly things like competitive dynamics. So one of the things we'll do is a 360 review around, you know, what's engagement like, what's competitive landscape like, how do these guys engage with shareholders, suppliers, regulators, um, both risk. It's just understanding all the, the more big, hairy, complex pieces of it. And again, if you can't articulate what those are and you don't know what the bearer case is well, then you probably don't know the business all that well. So we'll try to work through all that. And then at the end of it, um, you know, let's say something's worked through, we've decided independently, we think this is an opportunity that's going to beat the market. Then it's a question of, well, how do we size this to get back to the, the tail end of your question? And we'll look at that in terms of how does this position need to be funded? And so something that, that I do, even though I was the PM, I would always have our analysts try to propose how they would fund the position and how they'd size it, because I want our analysts thinking like PMs, not just thinking like investors, not analysts who write book reports, but active investors. Um, and you know, in terms of that, we'll think about, okay, well, what does this bring to the portfolio in terms of potential return? What's our confidence around that return? How does this move in correlation with other positions we own, both in terms of like day-to-day, -day, how does it move in terms of factor risk, uh, but also from a business model standpoint, a longer-term view, what exposure does this have that other positions in the portfolio have as well that may not show up in a factor analysis, but we know are underpinning risks or opportunities to the business. There's a lot of art to that, and there's a lot of math and science that informs the art. But you know, from there, we'll ultimately make a decision and, and size it. Most of our positions, you know, average size probably four to five percent. We typically initiate with two percent minimum chips. Anything smaller than that, and we're kind of like, what, what are we doing with this? It's, it's not worth the time and focus and clients' capital. So, and Joe, real quick, how much how much time do we have left? Well, I just saw outside that our kids got home and they're boisterous. So, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll get to, we'll, we'll get closing it out. So then 
Joe, you, you've mentioned a number of, of uh, investing experiences already that have kind of you know influenced your thought process and different theses. But what would you say is that one investing experience uh, that changed your career or just really made you think a certain way about investing the most? Oh, that's a great one. Um, can I get two? Do two? No, you, yeah, no, not two. <laughs> no, shut, shut no, it down. Not two, okay. four. No, I'm just okay, kidding. Sure. No, give, give two, come on. Um, one would be when I went to the Value Investing Congress in New York back in, call it 2010, might have been 2011, but thereabouts. And there was a presenter from India who came up and he was like, I'm going to tell you all about a company we're invested in that is of comparable quality to many other ones I've seen today, but it sells for half the price. And the reason is that all you guys are all competing with one another in this very large, efficient market. You all went to the same schools. You're all very well-trained. You've all got Bloomberg terminals. Um, but where I'm looking, I've got a lot less competition. So with that, and I just, it really just socked me in the stomach. And I was like, you know, I'm only looking at the U.S. market. I never look outside of this country, even though most, you know, roughly half the world's market value is outside of it. And I know that that's less efficient than, than what I'm looking at. And that was a real eye opener for me. And ultimately was the spark. Not the only spark, but I'll say it poured gasoline on, man, I need to get outside the U.S. and look around and see what's out there. So that was one. Another was a comment that uh, David Gardner made one time. And I'm gonna, I'm, this is a little on the fly, but something effective. Someone asked him one time about how they locked in a gain of 25% on something. And he's like, look, that's great. But to be honest with you, it's hard to make big money in markets locking in 25% gains. And I was like, yes, <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a basic statement. <clears throat> but you know, ultimately, his point is um, you need to let winners run. And without letting, <clears throat> particularly for high growth companies, if you're not letting those run, you're not capturing that, that upside tail, then essentially you're just, you know, you're locking in a bunch of 25% wins and then maybe half the time, well, on let's call it half the time, and the other half, you're, you're probably realizing a loss. And so it, it's just, um, it's a simple sounding thing, but it resonates with me and stuff. I like it. And I agree. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as we're, we're rounding the bend here, you know, my, my final question to you then is, you know, for those who listening in maybe are maybe a little green, you know, or a little newer to markets or even microcaps, you know, what, what advice would you have for them? Uh, well, I think with particularly, okay. So high level one, while I've talked about the, the virtue of being a high conviction investor, again, that's in the context of owning, you know, 10 to 20 companies. I think a lot of retail investors, new investors make a mistake of they own a couple of stocks and, that's just way more concentrated than most people can handle. And the cold truth is when you're brand new to investing, that's all the more reason to not be super concentrated. Like you've been doing it for 20 years, you know, you have a much better feel and knowledge around what risk looks like, at, even at the position level and what a great opportunity can look like. When you're brand new, um, that, that's terrible, 
risk management. So, you know, diversifying, um, not just cross holdings, but, but, you know, risk profiles, business models. Um, another would be actually know what you own. I can't tell you how many individual investors I've met who bought something off it. They, they just saw a tip on a message board. So they bought it or they heard about it at a barbecue. They know the ticker. They may not even know the name of the company. And it's a little like, you seriously would have been better off just going to Vegas and putting money down because at least you would have had fun losing your money. Um, so, you know, just take the time to understand what it is you're investing in. Um, I guess a third thing would be write things down. And so that's a big part of it. Like we're very thorough, again, like not just checklisting, but anytime we make a change to a position size, uh, to a target allocation, we write it down and we just say, look, this is why we're doing it. Here's how we're thinking about the return and risk and how this position fits. And it can seem like a chore when you're doing it, but it provides a lot of discipline because before you go and invest, you're actually writing something down and saying, this is why I'm doing it. This is why I'm making a change. And it just provides a little, an emotional handbrake to what you're doing. And I think um, <clears throat> you just start a simple Google Drive file or Word doc where you keep up with that. It could do a lot for your investing psychology. All right. Well, with that, Joe, where can our audience go and find more information to follow you and uh, all your your next moves? Uh, all my Austin barbecue recommendations. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, on, on Twitter is probably the best place. Uh, it's just at Mager or spelled M-A-G-Y-R. Uh, but I'm on there and active and DMs are open. Um, if you happen to be in the Austin area, we'd love to connect. So get in touch. Very cool. All right. Well, I, at some point, uh, we'll, we'll be at Terry Black's, uh, I'm sure, very, very shortly. So, cool. Joe, really a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Good, really good luck on the move. That's a pain in the ass. I wish you all the best on that. <laughs> and <laughs> stay safe. And uh, I look forward to uh, speaking to you again soon, either virtually or in person. Great. Thanks, Bob. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.